Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome everybody to another episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. It's a very, very special episode. Um, today we are joined by the irrepressible human rights activist and founder of the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, Mariam Namazi, who I should say, and I'm going to embarrass you again, Mariam, um, a personal hero of mine for many, many years now. I, I know he's also a personal hero of Armin's. I mean, he said that many times too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she's he's been here before and today uh, we, we actually are going to speak about um there is an explosive new documentary that mariam has uh, executive produced uh, along with geeta segel and and some other people um it's called women leaving islam right and this is a topic we've talked about here uh, a lot we've had many guests um many women uh, ex muslims you know who from a variety of backgrounds and the film itself features uh, women with some incredible stories who come from a variety of backgrounds. So some of the backgrounds there come from Bangladeshi, British background, Egyptian, Moroccan, Saudi, Somali, Kenyan, uh, Pakistani, and Tanzanian. And uh, these are women who dared to leave the religion they were brought up in, uh, which is Islam. And uh, the stories, the way the documentary is done, Mariam, is just, uh, it's amazing, it's moving, it's riveting. Um, you know, you watch it, you, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's inspiring at the same time. And I wanted to start, right, just by asking you, and I, I know one thing is, you know, people in the ex-Muslim community, there is a very different experience that women go through. Like the kind of threats and everything that they get are very different from the kind that, that many of the men get. So um, what brought this about? the project of the documentary and why did you decide to do it now? Yeah, thank you, um, Ali and um, Armin. I know he's having some technical issues, but it's great to have um, to be here. And I'm, I'm thankful that you've invited me here. Yeah, I agree. It's such a beautiful documentary and I kind of loved it so much. And I felt moved every time I watched it, even though I watched it a hundred times before it was actually broadcast. And the idea behind it was that uh, initially when the ex-Muslim movement began, there were a lot of men and very few women who were visible. And it, it, it was obvious that it, you know, women also uh, were free thinkers. They also wanted to leave Islam, but they were faced with a lot more difficulties in doing so because there was a lot more control over them in their homes, for example. It was more difficult for them to uh, be invisible to some extent because of the hijab and the sort of social controls. It wasn't easy for them to come in and out of ex-Muslim uh, gatherings. And so we kind of wanted to to highlight what it feels specifically for women to be able to leave Islam, why it's got 
added difficulties um, for, for them to do that. And what was interesting, though, is that this film took more than three years to make because all the original women uh, pulled out for various reasons, many of them because they decided that it was too risky, even though many of them, a majority of them, were not going to be showing their faces and were going to have their voices changed. Um, and, you know, because they were ordinary women, women who... Uh, just and the, the stories were so inspiring, beautiful, heartbreaking, heart wrenching at the same time. Really, it's such a loss that none of those stories uh, were able to come to light. And I'm hoping that eventually, you know, in 20 years, 30 years' time, we might be able to um, bring those voices to light. So we had to basically go back to the drawing board. Imagine after having done all this filming and editing and then just go back and we decided, well, let's interview only activist women because they've already come out publicly. We know that they've agreed to take that risk already with their lives. And so we're not going to have the same problems. And that's why now this film focuses on ex-Muslim women activists, uh, six of them uh, from very different backgrounds. Uh, and I think uh, not even so, even though they are activists, many of them are known already, their stories are really important to be heard. And we, we did have this issue too with the, the film being very long. It's about an hour and a half long. And we know that's not the right way to do things. It should be a lot shorter. And we just felt like, you, you know what? We know it's not going to be broadcast in, in cinemas or in art festivals because our issue is still so taboo. So let's give the time and space for women to be able to speak and for people to hear them. And I think, you know, it, it, it did work in the sense that people really got a sense of who they were, their struggles, and how much they, how, what a price they've paid for their freedom. Mm -hmm. I think uh, specifically, uh, I didn't, for me, the time just flew by. It just seemed like a feature length a movie documentary. Mm -hmm. um, so it seemed really appropriate. But if you're saying that you had, um, the, the thing, there's so many aspects to their lives, right? There's, it, it wasn't just um, the fact that they leave Islam. It's, you know, all of us are so much more than what we believe. Uh, many of these women, have, they've lost their families. Uh, some of them have built new families. Um, one was separated from her child, uh, another one just had another child. So you get to see a really multi-dimensional view of their lives in the sense that, you know, they're, they're human beings living lives like everybody else. Um, but, and it's not just that they left Islam because, you know, they wanted to change their mind and become activists. It's something that actually impacted their lives. And they were almost compelled to to break out of it. I think that's one of the most powerful um, aspects of the documentary. Uh, so I, I I was wondering if you could comment on that. You know, really bringing about the entire um, the human element of their lives, and not not just the ideological aspect. I think that was the part of it that was really really compelling. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, clearly, like you say, people are human beings. We have many characteristics that define us, not just our atheism, for example, you know, but we are so many more things, uh, both belief-wise as well as who we are as people. And I think 
one of the things that comes out in this film is that, uh, you know, the fact that you become a non-believer is very much linked to other aspects of your life as well, particularly when it comes to women. Uh, because the restrictions of religion on women in particular, the targeting of women in particular, makes it all the more difficult to say that you're a free thinker because it is locked up with so many other issues that are matters of survival and life for you as a woman. So as you mentioned, uh, Fozia uh, from Pakistan, Fozia Elias, you know, when she... Uh, when it became clear that she's a non-believer, uh, her her husband, uh, who was a violent man, you know, um, took her to, when she wanted to ask for a divorce, he accused her of blasphemy, which meant that she lost custody of her daughter. And you can imagine how painful that must be, yeah. you know, to lose custody of your child and uh, to know that you may never see your child again you know she the one of the things she ends in the film one of her statements is that she hopes that one day when her 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 daughter is old enough to have access possibly to social media she'll look for her maybe and that she has hope that as an adult she might be able to see her daughter you know and you've got someone like Faye Rahman who um, was in a very violent uh, situation family-wise. I mean, it's so distressing to hear what she went to, through as a child herself, but also looking after other siblings. And this, you know, her act of leaving her home, but leaving her siblings behind in a violent situation. And her, that guilt and that, you know, heartbreak that never, ever leaves you. You've got people like um, Mimsy, uh, uh, Vids, you know, she talks about how she went and spoke to her family, you know, telling them, you know, I'm the same person, I'll always love you. And them saying, well, no, it's everything has changed now. And the heartbreak of that, you know, and you've got woman after woman giving stories like that. Mm -hmm. Armin, you had a question. I'm sorry if my audio is bad. My connection is very bad today. Um, uh, what? Why do you think the backlash um, that women get when they abandon religion from friends and family is a lot stronger than men get? And not to dismiss the backlash that men get, they also go through a lot. But why is it comparatively um, a lot stronger, a lot more aggressive with women? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at um, women's role in religion and even in national culture, in patriarchal culture, in religious culture, very much women are seen to be those that, you know, their, their role is limited to those who are reproducing the next generation of the patriot and citizen or the next generation of the religious community and so there's a lot of pressure on making sure women do as they're meant to do as a way of managing control of the community and so you know it is very much a control of women's sexuality a woman's body um, as a way of keeping control over uh, the rules and regulations of a community so i think that's very much why women uh, face the sort of threats mm -hmm. and uh, abuse in a very different way it's it seemed to be uh, such a such a violation of 
you know, uh, the rules and regulations to have women transgress, to have women criticize and question religion. Uh, and, you know, if you look back at Islam as well, you, you see how women are seen to be, for example, the source of chaos and fitna in society if they're not following the rules, if they're not properly veiled. Everything goes to hell if women don't abide by the rules. And that's yeah. the sort of constant propaganda we hear. And I mean, you, you have in Iran, for example, where veiling is compulsory even, according to the law, anytime there is any issue from an earthquake to rivers running dry, uh, you know, anything going wrong, and it goes back to the fact that women are not properly veiled in Iran, for example. And so you've got this, this sort of women are the line of, for, for them, the line that needs to be held. And that's why when the religious right come to power, they always target women first. You know, they come for women first. And in a way, I think women are seen to be a property of communities and families and societies. Even today, they are seen to be properties and belonging to the community. And, and so I think they are seen to be more expendable and it, it is easier to give you know control of women over to the community you see that in even places like britain where you have sharia courts you know the government will say they're dealing with trivial matters mundane matters but the matters they deal with are matters related to women and the family their role in the family and so you can see how easily it how easily uh, women can be used as pawns and they are also seen as the first line of defense for religious national movements as well. I, I think yeah, there's some terms here, um, like honor culture, modesty mm. culture. And if there was ever an extension of rape culture, it would be modesty culture in, in a way. You know, the, uh, and you know, what you're talking about, the rules and regulations, um, there's an aspect of honor that the women are tasked to protect. If there is, you know, we hear about the honor killings all the time. If a woman brings dishonor to the family, if she goes out, uh, you know, and takes off her hijab when she goes into public, or I mean, people have there's a where I'm sitting in Mississauga, Ontario. There was a girl many years ago who was who was killed by her her father and her brother uh, because she left the house with a hijab and then she took it off when he, when she got to school. Um, we see this around the world. If they if they fall in love with somebody and want to choose their own um, romantic partner, or or you know even get married to them, they marry by choice. They've brought dishonor to the family. So there's that aspect, and that you see, and you know when Armin talks about the aggressive, you know it's it people are much more aggressive towards women who leave Islam. You can see that in the kind of threats that they get. Right? I have people who disagree with me and they'll say uh, that, you know, you'll, you'll get death threats, you'll get th threats of violence, but one of the threats, the common kind of threat that I get and that Armin also has gotten um, is just sexualized threats for our spouses, for our mm. sisters, mm. our mothers. Like, this is what we're going to do to your family, mother, our daughters, right? There, there's mm. a... Uh, it's all of their sort of Islamic virtue and you have to be good and all of that goes completely out the window and they think they're doing the right thing. And I think that this is one of the biggest things I've seen with women um, 
who leave Islam is that I, I would think it takes a lot more courage because you know that you're just going to get a, a, attacked in one of the most brutal, you know, sexualized way. You know, that, that's, that's an aspect of it. I think that's a much, much, it may even be a much bigger barrier for, for women uh, to leave because then, you know, they, if they leave, then, their moral character is questioned. Well, now that you've left Islam, you can drink, you can have sex with everybody else. You're, uh, you know, they, they get slut shamed. Um, that's something that a lot of men don't necessarily have to go through. Yeah. I mean, I think also, though, that people don't necessarily leave Islam thinking about the threats. Do you know what I mean? People yeah. leave or live as they need to live because that's just part of, you know, uh, being fully human, isn't it? To be able to think as you want and to live as you want. And so uh, obviously the reality of what happens after you do that is is very difficult. And I know many women who have gone back to being a Muslim um, as a result of the pressures. I'm sure you have as well. Yeah. Uh, there is so much pressure and also the the sort of shunning and ostracization and the fact that you have no one anymore you really have nobody else that you can call a friend, that you can call a, a family member. And unless you really are strong in creating a new community from scratch very often, because you, you would have been uh, very much, um, very often you, you'll be within a sort of community where it's everything to you, you know, your family and your friends and your um, schoolmates, you, it's all linked to that religious community and it is starting from scratch there's a lot of pressure and a lot of people can't can't take it and i know a lot of people who've faced huge amounts of abuse have gone back to that abusive situation because they just can't manage it and that's you know th that's just the reality of things it's it's very difficult and you can understand why people uh, find it so difficult to, to do that but we have to that's why in a way we have to make sure that people have enough support uh, so that when they do make that move that they don't feel alone you know but but the reality is that many people do continue to feel that way and when it comes to women you're completely right it is that modesty culture and it is this idea that women are an extension of the the, the family of the community, of the society, and therefore what they do is, you know, very, very important. And, and that's why so much of the resources and energy goes into sort of making sure women know their place in society, you know, make sure that they don't go beyond what is the requirements of how women should behave, how should women should dress, how they should speak, their voice from, you know, controlling their voice to controlling their, their movements. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, in, the, in the film you have, yeah, sorry, Armin, do you have a question? Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was wondering because the other, the flip side of the, my first question regarding why um, they get the disproportionate, um, negative reaction from the muslim community when they leave it seems um i don't know i don't know if we're imagining this because i have noticed this but and a lot of other people also mention it i don't know if this is um, not enough sample size but there's a lot of commentary on this um on how, why it seems like in the ex-muslim community a lot of ex-muslim women uh, end up in positions of uh, leadership um, like they seem to be leading the way in, in mm -hmm. many 
in the movement, like yourself, for example, um, Sarah Hader, Sarah Kay, they seem to be at the front lines um, at these, at these uh, when it comes to activism. Um, is this something we're imagining, or if it's true that there seems seem, seems to be disproportionately representing the, uh, um, you know, leading the movement? Um, mm -hmm. And if it is true, uh, why why do you think what's behind mm -hmm. this? Like, why is it happening? I mean, I, I think uh, it, it's true uh, in the ex-Muslim movement for sure, and I also think it's true when you look at uh, uh, progressive social and political movements in countries where there is Islamic rules and regulations. So you see that in Pakistan, for example, in the Orat March, you know, and the sort of visibility of women who are breaking taboos in in such an amazing way despite the sort of constant threats and even the fact that they live in a country where blasphemy is punishable by death and you see that in a place like Iran for example where a lot of the social political movements are led by women I think uh, partly it has to do with the fact that uh, you know because women are the first targets that their sort of reaction is uh, in a sense, you know, you feel like you have nothing left to lose because you are under constant attack and constantly being targeted. And so there is this feeling that there is nothing left to lose, that you, you know, if you want to defend your rights and your lives, you have to confront this sort of religious right movement, the Islamist uh, religion's role in the state. And also because it is, it impacts every aspect of your life. Look, if Fozia wants to leave Islam, she loses her child. You know, mm -hmm. if um, Rana Ahmad wants to no longer uh, be Muslim, she wants to be an atheist. She has to flee uh, the country and leave everything behind. I know men have to do that too. But what I mean is that you have to break everything. You have to lie you know, that your father signed a paper for you so that you can get out of Saudi Arabia and get to Germany. You know, if you're um, someone like uh, Zara Kay, you know, who's also in the film, uh, you do have to, uh, you know, even break relations with your family uh, to and and leave everything behind. And, and we see even when, you know, she tries to go back to Tanzania, uh, you know, make amends with her family, work things out with her family, you've got the religious community trying to get her arrested and persecute her for being an atheist. So there's a lot riding on uh, the fact that you want to be free and it affects your marriage, it affects your child custody, it affects what you want to wear because the, the very removing of a hijab is such a visible way of challenging the religious right. For a man, you can still dress the way you want and people won't necessarily notice that you're challenging religious rules. But for women, like in Iran, you see the unveiling movement is such a key movement uh, for women's rights because the very act of unveiling is a direct challenge to the rule of the religious right. And so you do see women coming head to head more uh, visibly, you know, and, and I think that's why uh, a lot of that is translated then into sort of the leadership positions you see women uh, taking. Mm -hmm. I uh, and I, I think you know when you said they want to be free, that's really what it's about. It's it's not just about leaving a religion or thinking differently. I mean, all of that is part of it, but 
a lot of this is motivated by just wanting to be free from the rules and the shackles and everything that that's been imposed on you and that that applies to a variety of women in different ways in the film uh, we see some of the women from very conservative backgrounds like like Rana Ahmed like Faye Rahman who came from a Salafi background uh, her father was very very sort of ultra conservative uh, you know Wahhabist Salafist Muslim um, uh, and then you also have the examples of uh, someone like Zara Kay, whose whose family is comparative, comparatively uh, sort of more moderate, uh, and and you mentioned that for those who don't know, Zara did go back to Tanzania recently to spend time with her family, who she is on good terms with, and when she was there, the the community essentially uh, tried to get her arrested. She was arrested, and she was trapped there um, for 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 quite a while i think a couple of months almost and until you know she she made it back to australia thankfully but largely in part due to the efforts of your organization Mariam. so what what are some of the differences that you have seen and some of the similarities between you know women who come from extremely restrictive uh religious backgrounds versus women who come from sort of more moderate and liberal uh family backgrounds like i i and i'm assuming such as yourself Hmm. I mean, I suppose oh, for, for me, one of the most important things is having a family support. I think that's such an important thing for me. I, I, I mean, my parents are Muslim, but they have always supported me and uh, unconditionally. And I think that makes a big difference uh, in, um, you know, in, in being able to live my life without the constant feeling of guilt, because I think guilt has a lot if you look at people's family relationships, no matter how abusive family members have been, you you see how guilty people feel for not doing what their their family wants of them and requires of them, and how they feel that they've left their let their family down, and it's quite heartbreaking to see because you 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 know you see. Um, you know, Faye mentions it in the film where she says, you know, when she reported her father to social services, she says that she feels like she's, you know, knifed him, her best friend in the back sort of thing, you know, and um, this this constant guilt uh, that, that follows people. Uh, and if you come from a family where they're not against your apostasy, they don't necessarily agree with you, but they... They don't threaten you. They don't try to limit you. You still have their their love. It, I think it does make a big difference. But the end end result, I think, is the same because while it, it's much more difficult for women who come from families that are abusive, that are controlling, that are I extremist, that the end result is that they have uh, reached and are living the lives of their choosing and. You know that that is something great to see. I think what whatever people's choices are to be able to live in a way that's not harming anybody else, but that they're living their true selves uh, without having to live the way their families or the larger community wants. You know, and I think that's that's very important um, to to have that. And and I think one of the questions we ask all the women is, do you regret? Um, all of this that's happened to you you know for example halima is another woman halima salat who um tried to stop the uh, mutilation of a young girl she herself had been through fgm in kenya she's from a somali background yeah. uh, 
the family had tried to exercise her, tied her up, beat her up, you know. So she has lost a lot by challenging uh, the, the norms, um, as have all the women in the film. But what what when you ask them if they regret it, you know, none of them regret it. It's painful, of course, you know. It's painful. It's something that they'll always, the trauma of it, uh, they'll carry with it with them for the rest of their lives but nobody regrets it and I think if you're able to live the life that you want and of your choosing it does make things a little easier doesn't it because at least you, you you're being true to yourself you're living the life that you want mm -hmm. Armin. Um, Ali um, I think we should today we should spend a little bit extra time on the patron questions because I know some of them are from uh, atheist women in um, very religious countries. Um, so, and they're very excited to be able to ask Mariam some questions. Um, so I do think like if we have extra time to highlight them uh, and answer them, that would be great. Yeah, I, th I, th I was actually just going to say the same thing. There's some excellent questions coming uh, from the patrons today. So I thought we'll uh, just go ahead and uh, start with some of them. Um, so Goddess Katie is asking, how much is Maryam faced off with the kind of feminists who insist on promoting hijab as empowerment and Islam as a feminist religion? I mean, I think um, that's something uh, we all face. Um, if any anyone who criticizes the veil or who is critical of, um, you know, religion's perspective on women, what their place should be in society, will face those so-called feminists who think that uh, to defend minority women, they have to defend the veil. And I think, you know, it does, I do think um, that it comes from a good place in the sense that people don't want minorities to be under attack. They don't want uh, Muslim women to face discrimination and abuse in the streets and neither do any of us you know i think rightly they're concerned about the rise of the far right for example in europe and the west uh, but i think uh, that's why it makes our work very difficult in the sense that we have to explain that whilst we uh, want no one to face discrimination for how they choose to wear uh, what what they choose to wear, that we also have to have this conversation that when it comes to the veil, there is very little choice involved because it is a religious prescription. You know, it is something that has been imposed by religion on women, and the reason behind it is that women are seen to be the source of fitna and chaos in society if they're not covered up, if their voices are heard, if you know, their hair is shown. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do in explaining that while at the same time making sure that women who are veiled are not, do, don't feel unsafe on the streets. And one of the examples I always give, be against FGM, but you're not advocating for women and girls who've been mutilated to be attacked on the streets. You know, they're two very different things. Your defense of uh, women uh, means that you have to also oppose the veil because it is fundamentally misogynist, anti-woman. It is an extension of modesty culture. And I think we have to have these conversations. In, in We have to have these conversations. They're difficult. Um, there's a lot of emotion around these issues. 
Um, and I don't know, you know, we've we've come to a point in in our in in the societies where we live, where we cannot have discussions without it then becoming, you know, uh, e escalating. And I think it's it's sort of the the sort of mob rule and mob uh, threats of the religious right has escalated everything so that you cannot have these discussions without you either being a fascist or you being an Islamist, uh, you know, and it's this constant uh, extremes and we need to have these conversations coolly, calmly, but we have to have them because for me, I think criticizing the veil is intrinsic to defending women's rights. You cannot defend women's rights if you're going to defend religious prescriptions to control and manage women's sexuality. Of course, you can defend religion or you can defend women's rights. I don't think you can do both, you know, because yeah. they are, uh, they contradict each other. Yeah, that's that's definitely a quote for the ages. Uh, the uh, uh, Nicholas is asking, do you think the visibility of uh, ex-Muslim women has changed in the last few years for better or worse? Uh, earlier, you mentioned that it was still a taboo topic. So I think it should be quick because we already talked about this a little bit in terms of uh, ex-Muslim women being um, pretty prominent in the movement. Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, women are more prominent. And I think, um, it, you know, this prominence is important because yeah. it just doesn't only break the taboo of the right to blasphemy and apostasy, but also the right to be free from uh, religious constraints on women's body and her sexuality and her rights. And so I think that's why it is, uh, that's why the religious right are so hateful when it comes to women uh, breaking these taboos because it challenges so much more than uh, the right to free thought and apostasy and blasphemy. But it goes to the core of religion's view on women and her body. Oh, sorry. He, he got cut out just as he was going to ask a question, but he will be back. Um, in the meantime, we'll uh, take it. Uh, oh, wait, is he back? He's back. Armin. Okay, we'll just, until he comes on, we'll just take this question from Goddess Katie. Are women more likely to leave Islam because they are oppressed, or are they less likely due to lack of external influence and education? Armin, we'll do your question right after. I mean, I think that there is no correlation between education and oppression. And um, I mean, I think that you can find women who are free thinkers in the smallest of villages and fundamentalists in universities, you know. So I, I think that uh, it, it does, it, it is very much linked, I, I do think, with political and social movements. Uh, that give women the option to see that other ways of living is possible. And so I do think, for example, that had it not been for the ex-Muslim movement starting 13, 14 years ago as a political movement, not people just coming out and saying that they were apostates, but organizing as a political and social movement that we would not have as many ex-Muslims today. I, I can say that with complete confidence mm -hmm. that that is a fact. If you don't have 
uh, an unveiling movement in Iran, you will have less women who feel that they have the right to be unveiled and to dream of a life without the veil. So I think, you know, political and social movements are very key and it affects women who might have very high levels of education and no education at all. And so I think that um, that's why, for me, political and social movements are so key in bringing about change uh, because it not only fights for that change, but it creates a space where some other type of life becomes possible. Mm -hmm. Armin, you want to ask a question? No, just quickly, uh, before I run out, I just want to say that um, it's also telling that a lot of conservatives who are atheists um, and non-religious are promoting religion because of um, because they think women they want to control women and put women in their position that they like. They think they 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 have a they like Christianity or Islam uh, not because they believe it's true, but because they think uh, they're right about women and they want to use those tools. Uh, as a way to um, maintain their power over them, which is, I mean, it shows how powerful these uh, Christianity and Islam are um, at doing that, given that um, people who don't even believe in them sometimes uh, try to promote them for that reason. Anyways, thanks. That's, that's such a, that's so true. It's so true. I, yeah. I, yeah. Do you have anything? Do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I just want to give you an example of uh, this uh, woman, Afsana Lashow. She's uh, one of the women's rights campaigners I work with here against Sharia courts. Now, she is from a Muslim background. Her, her husband was a French Catholic and they lived in Dubai. And the French Catholic husband used Sharia law to prevent her from having child custody. And so she's actually not seen her son, Louis, for many years. Uh, because, you know, it, it is how useful religion is in um, making sure that uh, women who question violence and question uh, the role that's been assigned to them, how they all seem to work together in order to make sure that those rules and regulations uh, stay in place, you know, and it benefits them all. So another example with Sharia courts here in Britain, you had the Archbishop of Canterbury defending Sharia courts because, you know, one religious court is always beneficial to some other religious, uh, a completely different religion as well, because it helps maintain the status quo, it helps maintain religion's role in the state. And it's a very useful thing, particularly to manage dissent, as we see with apostasy and blasphemy laws, and particularly to manage, you know, these wayward, troublesome women uh, who are defiling, you know, and uh, causing trouble and uh, whoring about. I mean, the sort of the, the witches and the the whores and the sort of image that religion has of every woman that doesn't abide by its rules. So it is a very useful thing to have, and that's why I think, um, as Armin says, you know, you, you do find. Um, it being defended by people who you would be surprised at defending religious rules. Yeah, especially more recently, I think. Um, uh, Dolly is asking, uh, what do you think about ex-Muslim women who face sexual abuse from their friends, family, and authorities, how they can overcome that, and how to become proactive and ignore shaming and blaming? Well, that's, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? I mean, it is, I guess it's a question for any woman who's faced sexual abuse 
from whatever background. There is so much uh, self-hate, self-blame, um, not just by the woman herself, but I mean, this is something we see uh, even in non um, from non-Muslim backgrounds. What was she wearing? Uh, did she have too much to drink? Did she lead the person on? You know, it's it's a constant uh, attempt at blaming and shaming women. And I think, you know, we have to um, do the hard work of changing that culture and that, that way of looking at um, sexual abuse and violence, uh, defending women, uh, questioning the sort of um, extension really of modesty culture again, isn't it, where uh, women are shamed and blamed for any violence that is uh, that they face. And of course, we know that this is a battle that's taking place across the globe, uh, including in countries that are not under Islamic rule. Um, and it's a huge battle. Um, but I think linking up with the women's rights movement, linking up with the movement against um, uh, for the uh, with the movement of those who are fighting against sexual violence, against violence of, uh, against women, and um, shaming actually shame culture rather than women who've who faced abuse and violence. Yeah, and I like it's important to note, and I think I've heard you say this many times that you know modesty culture implies that the uh, the only modest woman is a covered woman, so a woman who is not covered. Uh, is somehow immodest or, you know, and, and then that obviously gives a lot of people license to do with them as they please in, in, a, in a lot of people's mentalities. Uh, just a comment here. You mentioned the Arat March in Pakistan. It's a women's march in Pakistan. Um, this is from Secular Proton. And they're saying that the Arat March movement has created a lot of dialogue in Pakistan. For my social group, almost everybody was talking about it. It's sad to see many against it, but at least they're talking about it. I, I think that this is a good point. It, it really works. Like the, the way that activism works a lot of times is mm -hmm. not that you are immediately getting people on your side and convincing mm -hmm. them in the short term. That has never happened in history. Right? Anybody who brought transformative change initially, they had massive opposition. Uh, but ultimately, when the conversation began, that's what the beginnings of of the change are. Um, so I, I think that that in itself is is probably a much bigger goal. Just to get yeah, and also, also I do think that uh, the women in the ORAT march and men uh, actually represent a lot larger of a population than we can imagine. Uh, but they are very often a silent. I think a, a large number, a, a very silent uh, group of people, because of the sorts of threats and intimidations that surround these sorts of issues. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, very often activists that break taboos are the tip of a, of a very large iceberg, but you can only see that tip. And eventually uh, the more uh, they um, normalize, uh, you know, uh, the issue that they're fighting for, whether it's of the right to blasphemy or for women's uh, rights and bodily integrity, the more you get to see how big that groundswell of support is. Um, and in reality, you know, it, it is difficult work. Taboo breaking work is difficult. Uh, and the, the, particularly because those who are against it are so vocal, they're so intimidating. 
uh, they're so threatening, you know, and so it seems as if they have more support because they're so loud and they're so, um, uh, you know, so violent in a sense, because it's not just the threats, it is what's behind the threats, what we know can come from their opposition mm -hmm. that makes these issues so difficult. And so I think, you know, we have a responsibility to stand with the women, for example, of, and men who have uh, who are part of the ORAT march, the women who are uh, leading the unveiling movement in Iran, uh, the ex-Muslims who are fighting for the right to apostasy, even if we are believers, whatever our position on um, on things, we need to be able to really surround these movements and support them, show solidarity with them, strengthen them, so that they know that they're not alone and that they, they're able to then move forward. Because if the Arad March wins, if the women's unveiling movement in Iran wins, if the ex-Muslim movement wins, it's really a win for everyone because it is a fight for fundamental human rights, you know, and it actually benefits those who are religious as well, because people who are religious are not necessarily, and more likely than not, they're not fundamentalists. And the, the more we're able to push back the fundamentalists, the better it is, I think, for, for everyone, for, for at least the majority of people in the world. Yeah, specifically for Pakistan, though, I, I will say, I mean, you're right about the silent majority. Uh, because whenever they have elections, like publicly, everybody has to show that they're, you know, the more Islamic you are, the better. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to elections and they're actually in the voting booth, um, uh, they the the Islamist parties just don't do as well. They barely, you know, get a fraction, tiny fraction of the vote. It's really interesting the way that that dynamic plays out too. Um, now, this is a question that I wanted to add something to as well. So from Goddess Katie again, uh, she's saying, as an ex-Muslim woman, uh, what do you think about the ex-Muslim movement right now? Do you think it is a great movement for women or is there something lacking which needs attention? Mm -hmm. And here, I also wanted to kind of tag along uh, the other point recently, uh, you know, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's also a very prominent ex-Muslim woman, um, and she's more on the conservative side, uh, her, her new book, you know, you had a pretty scathing critique of it and, you know, she noticed that and there was a little bit of back and forth, so maybe you, if you could touch on that as well, some of the um, the state of the ex-Muslim movement right now, the women, the ex-movement, the Muslim movement, and, and some of the differences that you may have. I, I mean, I think that uh, obviously uh, the ex-Muslim movement is important for women uh, because it is opening up the space for blasphemy and for apostasy. And a woman who transgresses religious rules and norms is an apostate, and is a blasphemer. Uh, by, by the very nature of uh, challenging religious rules and norms. And so it has great relevance to women in the sense that it opens up a space for women to live and think differently. But like any movement, you know, uh, the ex-Muslim movement is not a, a response to every single issue in the world in the same way that you know the civil rights movement in the United States didn't necessarily address gay rights. The gay rights movement in the West doesn't necessarily um, address Black Lives Matters. You know, movements uh, are relevant because they focus on specific issues and they are able, those issues are so key to so many people across various 
classes and belief systems um, that it becomes relevant because um, do you know what I mean? So you can be conservative and communist and liberal and still defend and think that the ex-Muslim movement is important when it comes to the right to apostasy and blasphemy. Right. But that doesn't mean that ex-Muslims are a monolith in the same way that we keep explaining Muslims are not a monolith uh, in the same way that um, all British people are not Tory supporters or Brexit supporters. Do you know what I mean? They're, we have differences of opinion. And so I think it's not an end all for women. I think the struggle for women's rights is much more expansive uh, than the ex-Muslim movement. And um, a lot more needs to be done to defend women's rights. But as a movement that is fighting for apostasy and blasphemy laws, it has great relevance and is very uh, important for women's rights. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to ask um, this, uh, you know, again, the, uh, oh, I the didn't disagreement. Mention, sorry, Ayan Hirshi Ali. Sorry, I didn't mention. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, if I can just uh, add a point on, on that issue is that, again, just because I'm an ex-Muslim, Armin's an ex-Muslim, Ali's an ex-Muslim, Ayan Hirshi Ali's an ex-Muslim, doesn't mean that we agree on everything and anything, just like Muslims don't agree on everything and anything. And so I think it's it's a good thing, in fact, to understand that we are individuals. We are not uh, groups uh, of people. We are individuals with our own positions on things. And I think a lot of it is uh, comes down to our political and social views on on issues. And so I, I don't agree with a lot of what Ayan Hirshi Ali says. Um, again, I find it a bit, uh, I don't know, annoying, for lack of a better word, that people would say that I'm now standing with the Islamists because I don't agree with Ayan Hirshi Ali, or that, um, you know, people are disappointed in me for criticizing her. Well, of course, I'll criticize whoever I think has regressive politics. I think Ayan Hirshi Ali's politics are extremely regressive. I think that she tries to, um, you know, racialize crime and she tries to criminalize migration. She equates migrants with Islamists. And it is kind of, to me, like equating white people with white supremacy. Just because someone is white doesn't mean that there are white supremacists. Just because someone is a migrant doesn't mean, from Muslim background, doesn't mean that they're Islamist. And so I have great problems with reducing um, a, a challenge to a religious right movement with uh, you know, combating migration uh, and trying to stop some of the most vulnerable people in our world from reaching safety. and. Um, including us, persecution, including us, including Ayan Ali, who yeah. herself it was an asylum seeker. So, I mean, again, so it, you know, it's not a question of being disappointed. This is about politics, I think, fundamentally, um, and the the fact that we should be able to criticize each other, to uh, to be able to question and challenge each other, and uh, you know, and that's part of being human. And, and it's an important thing to be able to do and something that we have to constantly fight for. Yeah, I, I should also say that I think uh, the fact that there are differences of opinion um, 
is a good thing. It shows the the growth and health of a movement. I mean, I remember I was talking to you before the show that you know when I first met you it was in two thousand and seven or something, and that mm -hmm. there were only a handful of people speaking, and, and you know you were one of them. Uh, Ayan Hersiali was one of them too, and you know both of you. None of this means that nobody respects her story and what she has had to overcome. But there are differences of opinion, and that just shows that there is a movement that is becoming bigger, and there is diversity of opinion and thought within within those movements as well. Um, I have uh, there's a couple of really good questions uh, I wanted to get to. We've got about nine minutes left, so. Um, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Dolly is saying, in your opinion, how can ex-Muslim women in Egypt make a change and claim their right? Or does that look like an impossible dream? So do you have any familiarity with uh... Well, I mean, I think uh, we have Nawala Sadawi, who is an ex-Muslim woman in Egypt, who has, um, you know, uh, made all of us dream, even though we are not Egyptian. And, uh, you know, she is someone who uh, has been a great, hero for, for, for many uh, across the globe. And I think it is about struggle. I mean, the reality is, look, I'm, I'm someone who's very much on the left. And I do think that for real fundamental changes, um, we, you know, we need another type of system. I think a system which is based on profit um, is a system that um, will not ever uh, respect people's rights and welfare. And that's why I think that when we fight for any gain uh, for uh, human rights, uh, it can easily be taken away, uh, very easily. You know, a lot of the fights that we thought, you know, we take for granted, the right to abortion in Poland, in, in um, the United States, you know, a lot of these rights can easily be taken away. And I think it is because, you know, a system that puts profit before human welfare will always um, uh, benefit those who are maintaining the status quo. And that includes um, religious rules. So for me, I think fundamentally we need a change in, in the system, but that doesn't mean that we can't fight for reforms, that we can't fight as much as possible for basic human rights and freedoms. And I do think that it all boils down to how hard you fight, you know, and how much of a movement you can create and how much you keep fighting, because the minute you sit back, it can be taken away from you again. I mean, that's just my perspective on things. And so I think, you know, you keep fighting. There's so many great women in Egypt, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in South Asia, across the globe that are fighting for things. We need to link up with each other. And that's one of the wonderful things about social media and the Internet. We are now able to link up. We are no longer visible, invisible. We are visible. We have a presence thanks to social media. And no matter how much they censor us and how much they try to stop our voices from being heard, we are linked together in a way that would seem impossible many years ago. And so we have to build on that. But of course, the fascists and the Islamists uh, they're they're using the internet as much as well. They are organizing as well. They are not only in power, uh, but they also have huge presence and are able to, um, you know, um, organize and mobilize on on social media as well. It's a fight. There is no guaranteed who wins, you know, and that's 
that's I the, have the difficulty and the beauty of it, isn't it? That it is up to us. I, I have to say, like one of the, an, on an optimistic note, a lot of the fascists and the Islamists that you're talking about, a lot of the Dawah people, uh, now their entire movement seems to be consistent, almost entirely of just responding to uh, the secular ex-Muslim movement. So I think that that is actually an optimistic note as well, as annoying as it can be sometimes. Um, I, I wanted to say before we went to, I think we're gonna take one more question because of time, uh, but with this movie, I. I almost see that um, if this was a series in -hmm. some ways, Mm -hmm. where whether you have individual stories or you have one aspect of their lives, like, uh, you know, ex-Muslims who are mothers, like I I know Halima and Fazia, you know, Mimzi, uh, all of them, they have children, they have families. Um, There could be, uh, this is just a suggestion, but I I think it would be so inspiring to see Mm -hmm how some of them did build their lives. You know, how Dolly's question is talking about how do you claim your right? But, and not, you know, like women who ended up in great careers or women who ended up, uh, you know, building a sense of family and and uh, friends and, uh, you know, a, a community around them uh, after going through the struggle as well. Uh, if there was something like that, you did focus on some of that in this documentary, but I think, um, if that came about, and th- th- those were some of the most important things. It's very inspiring to people who feel stuck, like what happens on the other side? I'm gonna leave my family, I'm gonna leave my country, I'm gonna leave everything I grew up with, and I'm gonna go to this new place. What's on the other side? It's so uncertain. And if they see what is on the other side and how these people made it, um, I think that would be just a, maybe a sequel or next part of the series. Yeah, I think there's so many stories really that we have, um, you know, to 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 say and that we're not allowed to. I mean, I think right. that's one of the problems. I did a TEDx talk, um, TEDx Warwick talk uh, last year in, in January, and it was about how we use creativity in order to challenge Islam and the fundamentalists. And that it is also so much about us having the right to tell our stories as well, to have some sort of visibility, you know, and to be able to say who we are without constantly being told that who we are is, you know, something that's so offensive that we're not allowed to speak and we're not allowed to live the way that we want. And of course, that TEDx talk has not been broadcast. I was just going to say. (laughs) Yeah, it violates community um, standards. You know, our whole lives seem to violate community standards. Is there any access to it, Uh, Maryam? Is there any way that you can do the talk in another way? I keep telling myself I should be taping my stuff because there's so much I that isn't ever broadcast that I should be filming secretly myself. But I don't have it. But we are thinking of doing a documentary just of that TEDx talk and uh, trying to get that um, out in the open. But what I mean is that there is such a need for stories. And I think stories are important because it goes to the heart of resistance. It makes people human. And that's one of the the reasons, you know, behind the film too, is to humanize people who are so often dehumanized just because they don't want to live according to religion's rules, you know. And and I think that is important. We have to get our stories out there. We have to humanize ourselves, unfortunately. No one else will do that for us. And we have to make sure that people know that there are so many of us. And they are learning that. They are learning that. 
uh, but there's still a long way to go, um, particularly given the fact that there's so many people in countries under Islamic rule that are living in very, very dangerous, risky situations. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna. This is gonna be the last question. I know that there's a few more. So sorry, patrons. I know that uh, this is. Um, it's obviously there's so many things to talk about. Uh, his secular uh, protons asking again. He's saying I can imagine for men, or, or they are saying I don't know what this is. I can imagine for men, uh, it's also easier to hide their lack of belief. For women, it will be much harder since they're restricted in almost every way. They can't get out of home without permission, right? So, so they can't even hide it. Yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, what one is there's more control over girls and women, but also. You know, it's 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 the very veil itself makes it very clear. You know, the you unveil if you take the veil off um, when you're outside of your home, put it back on when you go back home. There are people who might see you along the way. There's so much more risk involved uh, when when you are a woman. But that's of course not to say that men don't face uh, similar risks. But as you said, Ali, no one will ever say that they're going to rape my husband. But you know, you know the the opposite is always true when it comes to to women. Of course, now I'm over fifty, you know that that sort of sexual violence is a lot less. Now I'm called old hag and grandma, which is fine by me. You know, but but what I mean is like there there is always that underlying threat, but it happens a lot more to younger women in particular, uh, and women who are seen to be you know of reproductive age. I think that's really very interesting but they never stop even when you look at um isis and the fact that any woman over 40 was killed because they couldn't sell them on a slave market anymore this idea that you know women are only uh um for that period when they're of reproductive age um which is interesting because women still have to wear the veil when they're in their 90s as well um, you know, so that control continues, but this focus on young women in particular, I think, uh, it's it's a very, very difficult. The constant harassment and abuse um, and constant, um, you know, interference in your life. I mean, because I lived in Sudan, you know, this, this idea that my landlady could actually come into my house without knocking because I was a young woman and they could just do and say what they wanted with me people stopping me on the street telling me what i'm wearing in iran it's the same if you're a woman and you are seen to be muslim and you go into a shop during ramadan they want to know why you're not veiled this this idea that everybody is in charge of you you know it's not just your family but everybody has to make sure that you toe the line otherwise the whole society will go to hell according to them it is is what yeah. makes it very difficult to be women. Right. Um, okay. So we're gonna uh, wrap this up now, guys. Uh, I had actually had a hard stop at this time. Um, we'll end with this comment from Goddess Katie. She's saying, "I can understand Armin's frustration to have the Mariam Namazi on the show and a bad connection yeah. at the same time." So uh, <laughs> I know that Armin has been very frustrated this morning with this, and uh, but uh, Mariam, like, we're definitely gonna badger you to come on again. Uh, over and over again at, at different times. So I, I'm sure that Armin will get his chance. Uh, for everybody who's listening, uh, thank you, Maria, for joining us. This was a thank really, you. really insightful. The documentary is brilliant. Um, uh, please go and watch it. All of the links are in the uh, in the description. Um, and uh, for those of you who are listening to this, 
Uh, on audio, please do consider becoming a patron. You can go to uh, patreon.com slash SJME. And um, if for as little as a dollar, you can get five live streams a month. You can join in live, watch it, and then also comment and participate. And go support the Council of Exclusions of Great Britain and follow Mariam Namuzi wherever uh, on Twitter and all her accounts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yeah, well, Mariam, you started it all, and we're all here um, in large yeah. part, you know, because of you. You so made our you. job easier. You started all this, and you made it easier for the rest of us to follow. I would say you made our job. Well, really, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it is that's that is the great thing about movements, isn't it? It's all of us working together to make mm. change, and we can see it in our lifetime because things change so quickly nowadays, don't they? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they do. We owe you yeah. some. Thank you. All right. <laughs> thank, thank you thank very you, much. Maya. I'm going to go. I thank you. really, really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for Bye-bye. The secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA. That's what we have been told, but we haven't received our checks yet. If you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.